Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. We are going to wade back out into deep waters. Dave Burke is here. He's joining us now for the fourth time, and he and I have agreed that there remains work to be done. We have started some heavy lifting in looking at team-based culture, how teams interact, how to identify good cultural aspects, how to identify and mitigate difficult cultural aspects. Dave is a retired fighter pilot. He was a Top Gun instructor. He has flown the coolest pieces of technology anyone could ever imagine. And he comes to join me and we get to kind of compare and contrast experiences in two very different yet similar industries, having been in the military and then myself being in medicine. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes, please feel free to dive into the archive. He's been on three separate times, but if you're just hearing for the first time, this is going to be a blast as well. Dave, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks, Mark. Always good to be here, man. We've done some pretty big lifting and we have yeah. found that we've jumped right into it. And, you know, when you, when you go to a big workout and you don't warm up, you're going to end up super sore the next time. And then we cool down with our quick hitters. But this time I think let's do it a little differently. Let's warm up with our quick hitters. And for those who are listening for the first time, we're going to bounce a few things off each other, a couple of quick questions, get some ideas flowing, get some interesting juxtapositions of life in the military, life in medicine. The last couple of times I got to quarterback the quick hitters, but I am ceding the reins to Dave. So Dave, you get to, you get to lead the quick hitters this time. All right. I'm ready to go. I, I wrote a couple down there. Some of them are kind of goofy, but uh, some right. are actually pretty good. I'm ready. I'm ready. Uh, I'm going to start with the hard one. All right. Uh, the stereotypical doctor's car. What is it? Oh, wow. The stereotypical doctor's car, I would say many years ago would have been a BMW. Yeah. I would say now it's rapidly shifting towards either a Prius or a Tesla. Interesting. But, but Certainly for, for, uh, for a fighter pilot, it's, uh, it's the Corvette. I mean, it's sort oh, of classic. Yeah. American muscle car. There was more than one in the parking lot of Top Gun, one being mine. Um, <laughs> so I know that I know that car well. And uh, yeah, it's pretty stereotypical. All right. Uh, harder uh, getting into medical school or medical school itself? And kind of the reason I ask is that I think, you know, there's certainly this idea that medical school is really tough. But I've talked to guys that have MBAs, you know, gotten into top 10 MBA programs. And a lot of them say it's actually tougher to get in. I'm curious, though, for medical school, uh, that's true or not. It's a really, really interesting question. And I would say without any equivocation, it's harder to get in than to get through medical school. Once you're so getting into medical school, there's a whole prescribed curriculum you have to complete. You have to do well on the MCAT. You have to, there's that, the sense that you need to really have a robust CV aside from your college grades and stuff like that. And medical schools are more and more particular about what they look for. Um, when I was in medical school, I was fortunate to, enough to be on the admissions committee for my medical school. And the trend had really swung where physicians sorry, where medical schools want well-rounded candidates, people who've done lots of different things. They can yeah. find smart people, but they want people with 
you know, just the ability to communicate properly. Are they making eye contact when they sit down? Are they shaking hands? Are they presenting themselves in an appropriate manner? And have they done other things where there's a real interest in humanity as opposed to uh, really just getting good grades but not being able to connect with other people well? Because that is such an important part of what we do. Once people get into medical school, medical schools have a real investment in keeping you. So if you're having a hard time, they will really bend over to try to help you through it because attrition in medical school reflects poorly on the medical school, not on the medical student. If you've gotten in, you're smart enough to get through it. If you're not, the medical school is not helping you. And that is one of those things that will percolate out. So when people are looking at which medical school should I apply to, if there's medical schools with really high attrition rates – at least from my perspective, and I think most people would agree, that points towards the medical school not supporting its students well enough. All right. Yeah. So that, that actually makes sense. And I've heard that uh, from other difficult professions uh, where school is sort of, you know, certainly a top 10 MBA or, or something like that, that where that can be a deciding factor or delineation between uh, graduates. Uh, for the Marine Corps, for at least for flight school, you know, naval aviation, uh, it's classic military answer is it depends. <laughs> uh, because in some cases, like you can just sort of show up at your recruiting office that they got aviation billets available and you can get contracted very early, uh, as an aviation contract guy and, and you get to go to flight school. Uh, other times like the Naval Academy, it's sort of a rank structure that depends on the number of billets. And then my way, I took the worst possible route, which is the most competitive route, which was show up as a ground officer and try to convert to aviation. And then you're sort of subjected to whatever the, the numerical opportunities are based on that class. And I've discussed it in other podcasts, but flight school itself, I think is harder than getting in. Uh, the unlike medical school attrition is not something, you know, they're not looking to get rid of guys per se, but they will absolutely attract anybody uh, that isn't even remotely quite, that is remotely questionable about their ability to fly around ships. Uh, you know, that's the big setting uh, culminating event, deciding factor in naval aviation. So, uh, getting through flight school is certainly harder for most people than it is to get in. But if you're in and you're moving through, is that are there points at which it is unforgiving? Where look, you either have to meet this criteria or we can't keep you. Yeah, there's yeah. several, and, okay. and there's there's sort of benchmarks along the way where they'll they'll pull the trigger and get rid of you, uh, and not happily, but they'll do it out of necessity and know that's a requirement. And and the irony in naval aviation, certainly in the fixed wing fighter community, is the culminating event is the carrier. But it's the very last thing you do. So you could spend a year and a half just crushing flight school and everything's great. And if you can't land on the ship, they'll send you away after that massive investment because oh. you can't land on a boat. You can't be a naval aviator, period. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah. I think- and I saw guys, you know, on my carrier debts, uh, both in training and uh, in the fleet that proved that the ship was something they couldn't do and they're gone. And so they don't mess around with that. So, yeah, there's, wow. there's a, a little bit different there. I would suggest probably in some of the surgical training after medical school, in surgical residencies where you have to be able to demonstrate a certain level of aptitude and a certain level of dexterity, it becomes clear if you can't because you do need to be able to execute when you're in the operating room or if you're doing a procedure. There are certain things you have to be able to do, and there'll be remediation, but there are at points where it's this is probably not the right place for you and we need to figure out a different path. Yeah, and that gets to my third quick hitter. The question I was going to ask is, hey, what's the toughest part of medical school? And I think you've already alluded to it. I, I have as well that obviously the carrier uh, is is definitely the, the toughest part from yeah. a skill-based. Um, uh, but I'm curious. So I would view it, and I'll, I'll save my answer, but it's aside from the skill aspect, what's that toughest part? 
The toughest part of medical school, I think, was learning how to start to figure out early on balancing workload and personal growth because most people who go into medical school are still pretty young. I was still in my 20s. Um, So now you're all of a sudden dealing with a really, really high workload, rapidly moving towards a high workload with a big, big tempo. So like when you start clinical rotations as a third year medical student, things are moving really fast. You're seeing patients with the team. You're doing all of that sort of work. It, it, It becomes difficult to navigate a balance between the rest of your life. And I think that that gets into some of where the practice of medicine has problems with for physicians keeping a work-life balance, maintaining health, maintaining their relationships. I think that's some of the stuff you're not going to be talking about today. I, honestly, I think that that's one of the biggest things because it just isn't talked about that. Look, we're going to ask you guys to study a lot. We're going to ask you to spend a lot of time in the anatomy lab. We're going to ask you to do lots of different things. While you're doing it, we need you to take good care of yourselves as well. That last part, that's what doesn't happen. And so you're, everyone's figuring yeah. it out for themselves and it's tough. I thought you were going to say sleep deprivation, but uh, I think it all kind of goes, it goes hand in hand with what you were saying. Yeah, you're young. You know, sleep deprivation, you, you get tired, you move through it. I mean, that's part of, uh, sometimes it's like the thrill of it. You know, it's like, wow, I'm here. I get to be up all night and going to the OR at three o'clock in the morning as a medical student. It's, it's cool. You know, it's, it's exciting. Yeah. It's interesting because for the aviation side, you know, naval aviation is very different than, than the Air Force, but in naval aviation, one of the problems a lot of people have is there's nobody holding their hand or guiding them what to do. They, there's a syllabus and uh-huh. they don't, they don't do anything to really make you prepared. If you show up unprepared, you'll suffer the consequences, but it's not very well, it's not very regimented in the sense that like your time is your time. Obviously you're on the schedule, you brief, you fly, but when you're done, all the preparation is on your schedule. So you either do it and you show the discipline to do it or not. Uh, whereas other programs are very regimented. They coordinate study time, they coordinate preparation time. And this one's like, all of a sudden you got a steady paycheck uh, you're living down on the beach and you're, you know, in your own apartment, a lot of people, you know, for the first time in their lives, do whatever you want. Uh, and that freedom is something they can't balance and they end up struggling. Um, so, uh, there are different things about that too. So let me get to the next one. I want to, I'm anxious to hear what you have to say All about right. this. What is the most common misperception of being a doctor? What do people assume about you because you're a doctor? That's, that's not true. They assume that we know everything. They assume I was going to give you the exact same answer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They assume that they, I know everything, that I walk yeah. in the room and based on the symptoms that they have and the way they're presenting yeah. and the lab data I have, that I automatically know every last nugget that we need to make a diagnosis and make a treatment plan and execute on every last thing right out of the gate. It's flattering, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a thrill when people have that, but there's also that sense where you can sometimes see that expectation bubble starting to burst for people when they realize that their physician, despite all the training, all the, all the energy, all the enthusiasm and desire to do the best job doesn't have a good answer yet. Yeah. It's really tough. It's really tough. It's really, really hard. And so one of the things that we work really hard on now in terms of coaching and mentoring is framing those expectations. If you don't know the right answer, Why am I so short of breath all the time? How do we say I don't know in a way that still maintains trust, that still helps people feel like we're on a journey together? Just because I don't know right now doesn't mean we're not going to work hard to try to figure it out together. Um, But it is a skill to develop because, boy. Maybe saying exactly that's the right way to do it. Yeah, yeah. But there are moments where, boy, you can – 
feel you feel deflated yourself and you feel like you've deflated somebody else because you don't know right. everything and they think that you do. And they want you to as well. They oh, want you to they, well, that's that. part. That's a great point. They think that you do because all of their anxiety around what's going on is sort of being put forth onto you because they're hoping you can fix them. And yeah. that's part of the yeah. gift of being yeah. a doc. But boy, it's a, it, it can be really challenging sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Um, for aviation, I think it's, I think, I think every pilot is really smart. Oh, you yeah. must be super smart. And, uh, I think if you look at the bell curve for, for aviation, for fighter pilots, it's no different than any other bell curve. Um, and we probably have a reputation that's, uh, better than it really should be. And again, that's also flattering, but, uh, probably a little too much deference to what, you know, that mission that we do or the, the, the role that we fill or the job that we do doesn't necessarily mean that we're any better than anybody else or really anything other than that skill of flying. So, but uh, is there value in that mystique? I think for both of our professions, there is a value in having that mystique that for a fighter. No, pilot, it is. There's certainly trust there. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And you want that. And look, it's in a lot of ways is well-deserved. I mean, obviously sort of the lowest common denominator as a, as a, as a fighter guy is, you know, a fairly sharp guy, but um, not everyone doesn't sit, you know, uh, on the top of that bell curve, you know, we, we got plenty of guys and, and I kind of remind folks, Hey, we're, we're, we're human beings like everybody else. And, yeah. and we're subject to the same flaws. And, and, um, you know, just because you're doing something that people, uh, sort of place on a pedestal, that doesn't mean everybody, uh, there are, there are pilots that shouldn't be pilots, period. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is a fact of life and it's yeah. true in any job uh, yeah. for sure. No, it's interesting that, that, that's such closely shared ground between our, our, our two professions. Yeah. All right, this last one's a short one. All right. Uh, if you weren't a doctor, what would you be? <laughs> when I was on the admissions committee at my medical school, I used to ask all the candidates that I got the chance to interview, if you, oh, could yeah? do, if you could do one thing that you've never done before, what is it? And I would get these incredible responses, and I would tell them, one guy said, I want to learn how to go, I want to learn how to bake bread and I want to go to Italy to learn how to do it. And I almost closed this folder, but I was like, you need to go and do that. We'll be here in a year. You need to go learn how to bake bread in Italy and come back and teach all of us. You'll be a better doctor for it. I promise you. I don't know what he ended up doing, but it was, it, I loved that question. So I, I'm, I'm glad to have you ask me it. If I wasn't a doc, what would I be doing? I think I would be doing something in media. Um, I was a sports writer when I was in college and I really, really enjoyed cool. it. I really enjoy being a podcaster and hosting a podcast and getting to meet all those interesting people. And it's that same connectivity. It's the, you know, getting people's stories and hearing interesting things and learning from them and distributing them so other people can learn. It, probably something I'd have tried to build out something in that, in that media, being a sports, being a sports writer, doing a podcast, those sorts of things. I loved it. Uh, still do, you know, huge sports fan. So probably something in that vein, kind of a non-specific answer. I apologize, but it would be some sort of amalgam of, of being a sports writer, doing that kind of creative writing, podcasting as well. Yeah. yeah. I assumed you were going to say fighter pilot. So that was what I was expecting. <laughs> um, I don't know if I have the temperament to be, if I want to be a fighter pilot, but uh, that it's the landing on a carrier. I, I would uh, yeah. I'd love to try it, but yeah, now that you mention it, I don't know. When you showed me the <laughs> F-35 helmet, I wanted to try that helmet on. That looked I pretty incredible. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, I, I Similar for me, I think the intersection of communication and leadership, uh, I would have thought, I always thought being a teacher would be a really yeah. uh, something I would really enjoy doing. I, I lucked out because I left 
my career in aviation as a Marine and went to Echelon Front as a leadership instructor and got to do exactly what I wanted to do, which is that intersection of leadership and communication. And that's why uh, this is so much fun, right? This is why you and I are now in episode four, right? Yeah. Because th- there's value in doing this. It's exciting. People enjoy listening to it. We don't want to be the font of all knowledge. We're learning too, but there's a oh, yeah. the learning together that makes it so fun and so engaging. Well, I will turn the reins back over to you. I appreciate the, uh, I yeah. like the quick hitters. Though. No, the quick hitters are great. But yeah. I do want to circle back to one of the things that we were talking about earlier. And it, it was an interesting segue. And I didn't know those quick hitters were coming. But we were talking about how in medicine, that tough part of medical school and residency and life after training is that balancing of work and everything else. And yeah. There, there can sometimes be a real blurring of that line. And – you know, I want to get kind of specific around this. And one of them is around the idea of when work spills over with respect to time, when time spent otherwise with family or otherwise doing other things is really being taken over by work because of in medicine, you're on call for 36 hours in a row, or you're on a really difficult rotation, or you've got a whole bunch of cases in the operating room for the course of a month. And in the, you know, in the world of the military, it would be when you go on deployment and you are physically gone for a long period of time, our professions struggle with this. I think both of them really struggle with how do the individuals in it, the individuals who are fighter pilots, the individuals in naval aviation, the individuals who are physicians, how do they walk that journey so that they can be healthy, so that they can have healthy families, so that they can maintain yeah. good communication under the stress of separation. Well, look, I, I've seen this, um, certainly in my personal experience, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I, I see this across industry. Uh, it's actually not uncommon anywhere. And, and my answer, uh, and, and probably we need to take a little bit of time to kind of get down into this, but my answer is actually not all that popular. Um, but I think the reality is, is that when you're talking about sort of the classic work-life balance example, and, and life might might just be you being staying healthy and staying fit and staying active in other pursuits, or life might be, you know, a wife and three kids, like it is in my case. You know, life is is just other than work. It doesn't have to be, you know, always the same thing. And what that means, um, I think sometimes, uh, you know, people are trying to strike a balance of sort of what is equitable. And, and the truth is, in most cases, the best thing you can do for your family is to do really well at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually be really good at your job and be really effective and successful. Because if you're actually struggling at work and you're miserable and you're, you're not managing your time well because you're trying to devote your resources elsewhere and work becomes an issue, it's almost impossible to escape that. Certainly, if you're dealing with you know, your livelihood, like I need to do well at work so I can pay the mortgage. I need to do well at work so I can provide for my family. But even if you're not dealing with sort of that livelihood scenario where if this doesn't work, we're out on the streets, it doesn't need to be that, uh, that level of demand, but it's important to, to recognize that doing well at work is a, is a recipe to do well elsewhere. And I think a lot of people see it in reverse order. And, and, and I want to, let me, Let's explore this a little bit because I think it's important for people to understand what I'm saying is that's a conversation you have to have with whoever else is in your life. If it's your wife, your kids or whatnot. And that's the money right there, I think, is that conversation. Yeah, it has to. Yeah. And it needs to be something like, hey, hey, you know, my wife, Whitney, hey, Whitney, look, here's the pace that I have at work right now. Here's what we're doing. Here's why the grind is so hard right now. 
And this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And, and this is what my life is going to look like. And then here are the off ramps for me. There's opportunities here for us to get away. There's opportunities for, for here to kind of lower that pace. But, in, but right now, whether it's deployment or just a grind that you've got a project or something at work that, that is going to require a lot of your time, perhaps, you know, maybe a, 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 a trial, a patient or something that is requires your dedication. You have to have that conversation. You have to let them know what that is. But you also, and when you start to get to the flip side of that is here, here's what I see a lot when guys uh, I deal with or folks I deal with talk about work-life balances. They're going to grind 14 hours at work and they're going to push and then they're going to come home and they're going to be unavailable. They're going to be too tired to be a good husband, too tired to be a good wife, too tired to be a good parent. And that's when I say, hey, that's not work-life balance. When you get to your front door, your work is done. You stay, you leave it at work, you leave it in your car. When you walk in the door and if you got 30 minutes before kids go to bed, you are on your A game for 30 minutes. If you've got three hours with your wife, you're on your A game for three hours. This, I, I need to decompress. I need to sit in the sofa. If you can grind at work, then there's no reason you can't come home and do the exact same thing. So typically work-life balance isn't half my time at work and half my time at home. That's not the real world. You got to work and you got to work a long time. But if you're the person that comes home is like, I need to decompress with a beer and a TV show and I need my family to give me some space, you're doing it wrong. Uh, and if you have that conversation, if you can let them know, hey, look, most of my time is going to be devoted here. It's important because that's how I provide. And here are some opportunities for us to take some time off. But in the meantime, you can't give them what they need during the limited time that you have. It's actually, you're not doing the balance right. So what you're describing strikes me as two different things. One of them, it's mature. It's something that you've clearly spent some time with and have trialed with. It's oh, yeah. also, like you said, it's different, right? I, I actually really like that approach of kind of turning it on its head that uh, you work hard at work, but then you do that same level of energy. It's not like there can be a voltage drop. Actually, I really appreciate yep. that in hearing you say it. Is that something though, where there's mentorship, where you learned it? Does the, when you were in the yes. military, when you were in the thick of it, did you have people saying, Dave, this is what we've learned. This is what the people, this is what we as an organization know in medicine. I didn't observe that. I didn't yeah. observe that level of mentorship. Hey, Mark, you're, you're a resident now you're going hard. You're on call every third night in the ICU. And I know you have a girlfriend. Are you guys having conversations so that she really knows what's going on for me? I, I grew up with a physician as a father. We had had those conversations, so I kind of knew, but I could, I was very fortunate that I had a little bit of that insight, but I was not the norm. And yeah. what, what was that like for you as part of your development before you were a husband, before you were a father? Yeah, to be honest with you, I didn't have a lot of good role models in the military. As a matter of fact, I had some pretty bad role models. <laughs> so the uh, my personally, and that's not true for everybody. That that's sure, sort of just sure. how it was for me. But no, that wasn't. That is something that I I figured out. Now I got married late. Uh, I met my wife. Um, you know, once I got up to Top Gun, you know, I I met my wife and and you know we got married and had kids sort of relatively late. Uh, you know, uh, didn't have a, t a typical timeline. And in some ways that was good. In some ways that was bad. But I, I got to be honest with you, I didn't have a ton of mentorship on what work-life balance meant. And I didn't have a lot of good role models for that. I did figure out through trial and error and actually through some of my own shortcomings is that thing that you said is when you're on, you're on. Like yeah. the, the, the deal is, is that that's what you do. That's what we do as human beings. You, when you're on, you're on. And, and, that doesn't mean you have to give all of your time 
to your kids. Sometimes you got to tell your, and I tell my kids all the time, dad's going to be gone is traveling. And here's why I travel. Here's the things that we're able to do because I work and I have a traveling job. If I didn't, here's the things we wouldn't have. And, you know, they, some of them, you know, the older they get, the more they understand. The point is, is I'm very explicit with them. But what I don't do is come home after, and I come home on the red eye all the time. You come home on the red I don't eye want, all the I'd time. rather lose a day of, yeah. of uh, I'd rather lose a night of sleep than a day of travel. You and I uh, are so texting I, and you're, you're like, I just did a red eye. Half the time yeah, I get a text always, from you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially West Coast. I'm always on the red eye. Well, guess what? I walk in the door at seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I'm tired. I'm actually <laughs> Really tired, right? But you know, I, I can't imagine walking in and telling my my four year old, "Hey, Matt, uh, Dad's just Dad came in on the red eye. Dad needs a little time to himself." Yeah, like, yeah. No, that's yeah. that's not the deal. So I, you, and I don't mean to say, uh, I don't mean to use these sort of crass military terms, but when you grind at work, you grind at work, and when you get home, you have to put in the same level of effort, that same level of commitment. And the truth is, is that it's skewed heavily in terms of actual time towards work. You're going to spend most of your time in the office and most of your time at work. But the balance is showing to your family that you're going to give them 100% of who you are in the limited time that you have. And then, you know, I think the last point, if, if I can just mention it briefly, because it's probably worth exploring, is that when you actually make the commitment that we're going we're gonna to go do something, we're going to take a family trip, we're going to go do something else. If you haven't created a scenario by which you can walk away from your office and not be tethered to your, your iPhone or, or tethered to your email, you're doing something wrong. You're not doing a good enough job at work, training your subordinates, training your other teams, training other people you work with to be able to do your job without you. If you're indispensable at work, that actually means you're not very good at your job. And this belief of, of indispensability isn't a compliment. It's you haven't trained the people around you. You can't leave your work for five days. You're, you're so bad at training your subordinates that you can't leave the office for five days and so I like to turn things on their head a little bit there, too, is that the idea that if you are a single point of failure in your office, if you're a single point of failure in your clinic, if you're a single point of failure anywhere at work, you're failing as, as a leader at work. And it's also on you to make sure you can walk away and your people can survive without you, without having to check your email constantly when you're on vacation with your family, which is something we don't get to do very often. So when you do it, do it full throttle. So as you're saying that, a lot of what you're saying is resonating. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The thing is, though, is that again, you've gone through a lot of this stuff. These are obviously hard won skills. I, I would yeah. say a lot of what you're just describing is the journey that a lot of us are still on, and it's a constant battle. Just like the stuff we talked about in our previous episodes around building culture, it's hard work, and you're constantly doing it. It's the same with this. But we're also in a position where I know you with Estrelon Front more and more are forward facing and getting to discuss this with other leaders. I am finding that the subject matter is coming up more often. People are asking about this more often. There's more curiosity. Yeah. Are you having that same experience? Are you having the opportunity, not just on Explore the Space podcast with Mark Shapiro to talk about this? Is it becoming something that like, look, we not only is it okay for us to talk about it, it's vital that we're talking about this because it will yeah. help us do everything better. It, it is. Communication is, is, is the most common term used, the most common criticism mentioned, and the most common thing approached in everywhere we work is communication needs to be better or, or we want to be able to be more effective communicators. And I need to sort of stamp a point you made earlier. Yeah, I've learned this stuff. I, I wasn't born with this and I've learned this through a ton of trial and error. And I'd like to highlight the error. I, I, I've, <laughs> right made a ton of mistakes in my life for sure. certain, for, for sure. And by no means am, am I, am I without 
uh, error now too. So I don't want that that little diatribe to come across as uh, you know I've always known this, I've always done this. This is absolutely not the case, and it was not mentored to me, and, and it hasn't been mentored enough out there. But I think if you if you look at it, and part of the reason why what you're saying is true is that it's being asked everywhere. If you just look at it in those terms, that works. It works everywhere. It works in every industry, and it works in every relationship. Yeah. And what it also does, if if you can actually have that conversation early enough in your relationship, you actually do a better job of knowing who you're compatible with, who who is the right person and the right relationship for you. Because if you know out of the gates that's not going to work for that person, then then you know. Uh, and that point but, in medicine is exactly where the money is. That's where people always say, wow, did they know that they were marrying a doctor? What was it like to marry a doctor? Like, I knew what it was going to be like to marry. If you ask my wife, she's like, I yeah. knew. I, we were around each other a lot, but we also talked about it a lot. And it gets to one of the things where for me, this really came home. And this is why I wanted to talk with you about this specific thing is during the wildfire in Sonoma County last year, my family had to evacuate that first morning. And when my wife and I were settled at our friend's house with my family and our son was squared away, I said, honey, I, I need to go back to work. I need to go back to the hospital. The roads are open and I, I need to go back. And her immediate response was, of course you do. I, I get yeah. that. You need to go and I'm fine and we'll stay in touch. And we know that the phone lines are open, so we'll communicate. But yeah, you need to go back to work. And it was so good for me to know that A, she was okay. B, she was okay with me leaving. And C, we could handle being apart. But that didn't just happen by accident. That wasn't a fluke. We have had times over the course of our relationship where we have had to learn how to do that. And I think of one of the lessons that came out of that natural disaster was the importance of having those conversations. And I was really fortunate. I got to speak at UC San Francisco to their Department of Hospital Medicine. And that was the thing I stressed the most. I asked them, please, guys, all of you, when you go home tonight, talk to your families, talk to your friends, what would happen in a disaster so that they know that what would happen is you're going to want to go and help. Yeah. And if they don't understand that, there's going to be stress, frustration, resentment, all these different things. And then you're not going to be able to perform your job properly. And yep. so that part of it was, was really, really compelling for me in that moment. But also the, the same thing that you're describing, that same work of as you're going along, just keeping your partner, your family, your your colleagues up to date on what's going on so that A, they understand, B, they can support you. Well, we can close with, with my personal story, which is sort of the opposite. And mine's a classic case of kind of false advertising. I met Whitney. Uh, I was a Top Gun instructor. Um, <laughs> you know? And all we the live in Tahoe. I live in a place in Tahoe and I was, I was gone during the week, but you know, I didn't fly at nights. I didn't deploy. I wasn't dealing with combat. I drove a Corvette, you know, all those things were, were all, and, and, um, you know, I was also a Top Gun instructor. There's a cool mystique about that. It's a, it's a really neat, small, uh, organization, very close knit. We partied really hard. We partied as, as, as and played as much as we worked. And it was kind of just sort of this idyllic, like, non-military world and all of a sudden we got married and then next thing you know i'm on my ford air control tour in ramadi and and then the real military revealed itself to whitney right after we got married so her frame of reference was this really cool job at top gun and i was a senior guy at top gun i was a training officer and oh this is the coolest thing ever and then the real world hit hit her and i uh so i you know I, by no means did i set that up and give her have that conversation with her and let her know uh and i think that was something that we both had to work through after the fact, and if I look back on it and, and expressed, hey, this is not the real world, the, the real world is actually not like this, and we have to be prepared for this transition, 
I think it would have been a lot easier for her and I would have been, a, I could have done a lot better job. So it's not without, without my own mistakes. And, and I didn't do what you did uh, early on. It was just, Hey, this is the coolest thing ever. It's, but it's not always going to be like this. And I, I forgot that second part. But for the person who's in that same situation though, that whatever their job is, it looks a certain way and then they meet somebody and a relationship starts or their family has a perception of it. And then it changes what did you leverage? What tools did you use to keep things going? I mean, here you guys are, you're still together. Now you have yeah. a big family. Like you made it, but so many we others and, don't and get we, through that. We kind of made it through the fire a little bit. I mean, she endured certainly that fact to her, the, 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 the stress that came along with that deployment, uh, the trauma that went on there at the time home and then right back to another deployment. This is all before kids. She, she endured a lot. Look, in, in some cases, the relationship piece, obviously, you have to have some fundamental foundation where you share something that's that's more important than yourselves. But the, the flip side to that was it really boiled down to a conversation about what relationships meant to me, what relationships meant to her. And, and she knows that she's the most important person in my life. She knows that I actually put her above my kids. But that doesn't mean that she gets all of my time. It doesn't mean that her being number one in my, in my life means that she, by definition, gets the most amount of time from me. As a matter of fact, she doesn't work, gets the most amount of my time. But what she gets is that she gets 100% of who I am all the time that we're together. And if she, and she has a trump card. She does have that, hey, I need you now for these reasons. And she knows that that is a very – she's not going to throw that out. She She's going to use it only when it's needed. And she knows that I'm going to be there. But the rest of the time, she knows that the best thing that I can do for her to be a really good husband is to be really successful in all of the things that we're doing so we can live the life that we want to live. And it just took us time to get there. And it really boiled down to a conversation and a series of conversations and an understanding of – but that's how this works is for us to have the life that we want. We have to be successful in our jobs. We have to be successful elsewhere. And when you start to understand what those expectations are, what it really means, people understand that. And, and if you can tether that to being in love with each other, which is helpful, but doesn't mean your relationship survives. It's not why your relationship survives. That's it's right. required, that's right. That's right. but it's not the only thing you need. Yeah. Uh, when you're faced with the reality, the worst thing you can do is misrepresent, mislead, or, or or keep things from them so they can't actually have a real connection with you and a real relationship because there's components of it you're not willing to share until they sort of explode and then and then it's it does a lot of damage. That's a whole other discussion thread that I think you and I can pick up on. Yeah, maybe next write time. that down. We can talk about the this idea of what we're able to talk about. Yeah. yeah, what we're able to talk about in our jobs versus what we don't and how do we figure that out. In medicine, there was one day I came home and uh, I had to just cry in my wife's arms for an hour and yeah. I wasn't ready to talk about what had happened, but yeah. I had to cry for a while. And I'm sure there were days where you came home where you needed to show emotion or express yourself and not be able to necessarily talk about what happened or weren't able to, or maybe things you aren't allowed to talk about. But that is one of the unique parts of our two jobs. And we, I think we may be unlocking something else. We're going to continue talking about culture, but this idea of how we are able to continue to build relationships, because in our two professions, it is so important for the health of our, for the health of the workforce. It is so important for the people who are coming into the jobs who maybe want to do them, but think, I don't want to do that because, hey, I want to have a family. I don't want to have my marriage end in divorce. I, I want this. And well, you can do both. You can be a doc yeah. and have a great family and have a good life and be healthy. You can be a fighter pilot. You can be in the military and go through the stress of deployment, but still be able to maintain a good family life. There are ways to do it. It's making sure that people continue to learn it, recognize it, and talk about it. 
Yeah, it's a hundred percent true. You can spend almost all of your time uh, deployed at work and all those other things and still have a really good marriage and a really good relationship and be a really good parent. Uh, it requires a ton of work and it requires a lot of communication and understanding, but the two are not mutually exclusive. And you no different than you can be home all the time yeah. and not be a good husband and not be a good father. That's right. Uh, That's and right. spend a majority. The, the, the two are not connected. They It is it's tethered to something else that we've been talking to. And we can talk about that later as well. But uh, the relationship is based on, I think, like I said, the topic we really got to was this idea of communication um, and understanding. And without that, you're going to fail no matter what your, your time circumstance is. The more you and I are having these conversations, the more we need to have these conversations. Yeah. I think it's it's extraordinarily exciting to me. I'll be totally honest with you. This kind of fusion of these two professions starting to share ideas. There's always been overlap, but I, I'm not sure how much kind of crosstalk there's been on these practical aspects, culture, now communication, work-life balance relationships. It's incredibly exciting. So we're going to have to continue this work. Absolutely. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming back on. The quick hitters were great. I think quick hitters at the top of the show is what we're going to do the next time as well. That was fun. And uh, man, I, I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I look forward to keeping this conversation going with you. Yeah, it seems to be that every time we, we talk, we end up taking some vector that we can't, <laughs> can, we can't complete, but it, it segues uh, to what I think is, is sort of that, that next conversation. And, and we didn't rehearse any of this and, and hopefully I didn't take up, we didn't spend too much time on this subject, but I think there's a component there, not just at how similar our, our career fields are, uh, but sort of the, the power of being, being able to have a good relationship that is true with your family. It's true at work. It's true in really every aspect of your life. And I, I think for me, I look at the people that I looked up to the most, the people that are most successful in my industry, and I'm probably the same for yours, is that the ones who can cultivate the most effective relationships with the people around them, not not, not just their wives or, or their husbands and their kids, but obviously that's true, but, but with everybody, um, and the most effective communicators and the most genuine people are the ones that build the most powerful relationships are the ones that they can leverage that when they need it the most. Um, and the ones that can't do that eventually sort of hit some sort of brick wall where they're in, they, they can't get past some sort of turmoil that they're dealing with because they don't have that, uh, that they don't have those relationships around them. They can, they can rely on those are the people that get stuck answering emails on vacation. Those are the people that get stuck, not being able to decouple work and life when they're trying to do one instead of the other. Uh, and it's really predicated around being good at that one thing, which is communicating with the people around you in a way that they understand. Having seen people hit that wall, having approached that wall myself, yeah, what you're saying resonates, and I think it it's it, it's just good that we can kind of pop the top on that and say, look, this stuff exists, and even in our noble and worthy and macho professions, we're vulnerable to it. We got to acknowledge it. We got to get good at it. And there's no doubt, and I think that's true everywhere. Well, thanks again so much, and we will pick this up as soon as we can because people are going to want more. So, Dave, thank you. Right on, man. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.